Hello and welcome to the Pint Talks podcast, where two old friends chat about the world over a pint. Welcome back to Pine Talks. This is episode 2 of our two-episode series on gaming. Previously we discussed why we play games, how we play games, and the good, bad and ugly side of gaming. Here we're mostly going to be talking about monetization and the games industry, as well as esports. Hope you enjoy! Hi everyone, welcome to another podcast of Pine Talks. I'm Ray. And I'm Dylan. And today we're going to continue our conversation on the games. Uh, we're going to talk about the gaming industry in particular. Um, so taking a discussion a little bit different from the way we had it uh, last time, which was more around the sort of anatomy of games. Why do we like games? If you're interested in that, check out our last episode. But today we're all going business. We're all going about the game industry, esports, and other interesting things there. Well, one full disclosure about this podcast is it's kind of in the morning here. So there's not going to be any pints involved, at least on my end, here in Pacific time in Seattle. I'm drinking a coffee. He's drinking decaf, so not even even coffee. It's earlier today, so I'm not drinking either. But we'll, we'll make it up next time, I promise. Next time we're going all in. Oh, yeah. All right. We'll, we'll have see. to pick a very good topic as well. <laughs> we're getting drunk next time, everybody. <laughs> so. Yeah, we have, we have a very long list of potential topics, so we're going to pick a really philosophical one and just, just go for it, you know? Philosophical topics are best on a, on, after a few beers. For sure. Everything almost becomes... Either a political or philosophical topic. It's just because it changes its DNA to that. So we're talking exclusively about video games. Uh, we're not talking about board games or, or anything like that. Should we start maybe with what the gaming industry looks like and the size of it, maybe to frame the discussion for going forward? Sure, go for it. Okay. So when we talk about the gaming industry, there's you sort of need to consider there's different industries within it. So you have uh, mobile gaming, PC gaming, console gaming, and handheld gaming. Now some people break it up into more, but generally those are the four big ones. Mobile gaming is the newest one, and, and it's at the moment it's getting to be the biggest one. So none of them are over 50%, but the mobile industry is getting gaming is getting quite big. Overall, the size of the gaming industry is estimated to be about 160 billion worldwide. And just to give you some perspective, the size of the worldwide box office is um, about 140, uh, sorry, about 40 billion. It's a bit more than 40 billion. And the size of the music industry is about 20 billion. So the gaming industry is bigger than both of those industries combined. You have the more established companies like which supply what's called AAA games. And AAA games are big titles, very big games, very ambitious, good graphics. And they typically cost about $60 US, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less, but around there. And then you have more independent gaming, which is also quite big. And uh, that's called indie gaming. Oh, that's, that's pretty huge, right? It's kind of like, uh, I mean, I always knew, obviously, that I'm not a you know, super gamer. I mentioned last podcast, too. I'm not really into games anymore. I mean, I do play some games, but I used to play a lot more when I was in high school. You know, like, I, I've known that games are big, games are around. But when you think about movies and music, you know, those seem like, like they're so big. It's, it's crazy that the video games industry is actually quite a bit larger and and is growing at a at a pretty rapid yeah. pace i believe it's i think the fastest growing entertainment industry yeah uh, just to give you a bit of perspective there was recently a game called based after marvel's avengers and it was a game called marvel's avenger uh, avengers that Original. game did not perform well and sort of flopped in the following quarter the studio report fi- reported 48 million loss there so was it's a pretty game. big investment. So it's kind of like, I guess the blockbuster games are kind of like blockbuster movies where it, the risk is bigger. probably a lot bigger, actually. Like a lot of the big games, uh, there were two big games which went, came out in sort of the two last years. 
what's one was called uh and is called anthem which came from bioware which is subsidiary of electronic arts and that game took about seven years to make and it's it flopped as well and then there is another one which is called cyberpunk which is from a polish studio called cd project red and that game came out this year and it also took about seven years to make for sure yeah i mean yeah usually movies i guess take several years to make but they in terms do. of investments, I mean, there's there's huge investments, right, in, in movies mm. as well, in the blockbuster movies. And there are billions of dollars involved mm. in, in making these, I don't know, Inception-like movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, usually movies, the blockbuster movies can have sort of between 50 and $250 million in terms of budget. I think this year, 2020, the biggest comic book movie in terms of revenue is uh, was uh, Birds of Prey and Birds of Prey had a budget I believe of 125 million and I think worldwide made just over 200 million ish in the box office and it just came, it came out I think about a month before the COVID lockdowns so this year has been definitely a, <laughs> a rough year for movies I guess with, with, I think, with the pandemic and everything. Yeah, I think this is one of the big differentiations with movies and games, that games you can almost play anywhere, and games can are also more friendly towards uh, development in isolation, especially indie games where you have a very small team of people. Sometimes it's one person who is developing a game on their own. So they have no... So long as they have the proper equipment, which can be quite expensive, but so long as they have the proper equipment... Really, you don't, you're not affected by almost anything. Right. But I guess we're also seeing that in movie making as well with, with, you know, it's kind of like an emerging thing, but you know, you do have these iPhone documentaries shot on iPhone only, for example, or, or another smartphone. True. But winning Oscars that are becoming super viral videos, right? When you think about the videos, like they are becoming this, this huge thing. True. But movies need a subject. As in, they need like usually actors, people to be there in the movie, whereas games you create your own subject. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like it's yeah, even there's no crew involved or anything. Like yeah, that. there's yeah, nothing. Yeah. yeah, it's just a guy in a room basically, or gal, person in general. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How many of these obviously very successful games are actually coming from, you know, someone's basement versus? through these big studios with thousands of designers and engineers? I think it really depends on sort of what you mean. Games that are from individual or small teams will obviously always be smaller in terms of audience. So you'd rarely have one which is, uh, has millions of, of downloads or millions of, buy, of people playing it. Uh, whereas AAA games will have a lot more players because obviously their marketing budget is also huge. But on the flip side, there are a few platforms such as Steam, which is an online store basically, which do prompt a lot of, they aim to provide a place for a lot of these companies, be it indie or AAA, to prosper. And a lot of these platforms even have more indies, uh, not only in number, but because a lot of the big companies prefer having their own storefronts because then obviously they don't have to split the profit. So they are trying to push you to get their storefront. Whereas Steam or Epic Games or Good Old Games or GOG, uh, they're great places for smaller indie titles because they have a huge client base and you can get featured, you can get promoted. It's almost like the YouTube for, for videos. So can you explain a little bit what those platforms like Steam what are the functionalities you get? Is it just a marketplace where you buy games or how does that work? It kind of varies between platform and, and uh, between different platforms. So Steam particularly is, is uh, mostly PC or only PC and it has a lot of functionality. It's one of the most used platforms like this. You have a marketplace and it, you can basically buy games. You can have your friends there. And if you have friends, you can play with your friends through the platform. In a lot of games, you have to kind of connect through some kind of an online system. Here, you connect through Steam, which is which helps indie developers because they don't have to go out of their way 
to create a very complicated online searching and matchmaking, etc., which is a big part of, of gaming. On top of that, with Steam, they have additional features. Like you, they have various ways to highlight games. They have personalized storefront, so it looks at what games you like playing and suggests more of the same type. They have accepted reviewers, reviewers which have shown themselves to be trustworthy. They have some other features such as uh, play together remotely, where you can play games together. Even if the game does not have uh, online multiplayer, you can Steam kind of helps you become uh, like a LAN connection, local area network connection. Okay, as if your computers are connected in the same the room. Same yeah, proximity, same um, room. Mm-hmm. Another type of uh, platform is, for example, the Sony platform or the Xbox platform, which are mostly created from for consoles, but the Xbox, for example, also has a PC variant. And they're starting to introduce these subscription services, which you can pay a set amount of money a month, play any game that's there. And you can also obviously buy the games there. The last newer type of store and and the newer type of service in general is uh, sort of like Stadia and GeForce Now. And Stadia and GeForce Now are systems which allow you to stream games. And what that means is you pay a set amount per month and then you can, with Stadia, you can play games on Stadia without having to download them. So you're just streaming the game to your computer much as you'd stream a video But in this case, it's a game, so it's interactive. And with GeForce Now, you can even play a lot of your Steam games or games on other platforms. So you're, in effect, making your computer online. You're playing on a computer you're renting from that company. So that's a different type of platform with different functionality. The the industry, I guess, seems quite mature. You know, it seems like there's quite a bit of different functionality, different features, you know, it doesn't, I was expecting to be a little bit, I guess, simpler, just being on, on kind of the outside of it, just like like an app store, you know, you just kind of buy the games here, but there's nothing more, more special about it, which seems like it's quite sophisticated, actually. Yeah. There is also another type of which good old games is a little bit different than all others, because it focuses, first off, it focuses mostly on older games. So it's it, in a way, it's an archival kind of system. And the second thing is it does is it focuses on uh, what's called DRM-free games. That means your game is not linked to the account of an online seller. Usually, if you have a game, it would be linked to that specific company, whereas now you own the game. I'll clarify something here as well, which is lost on a lot of people who play games a lot of the time when you buy a game online, you don't have the physical product, you technically don't own a game. You own the license to play the game. Right. I think it's kind of like music. There was a case where I think it was Bruce Willis that wanted to, I think, add his iTunes library to his will or something like that. But then I think he had a trouble. I don't, I'm, don't remember exact details of it, but I think he had some trouble because it turns out that he didn't really own those songs. He couldn't really put them in his will because he only had actually the license to play them limitedly for free, but he couldn't really like actually <laughs> give them to someone else to inherit. So that's kind of interesting uh, problem. I was like, it's, it's kind yeah. of similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a big discussion in the gaming or relatively big discussion in the gaming industry because some people have over hundreds of games on a specific platform. So the question is, well, you've invested probably thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in, in like the most cases. And some individuals who are kind of refer, are usually referred to as whales, uh, so people who spend a lot, they could also have like hundreds of thousands or even I've heard of millions of, of dollars in a certain game or in a certain store. So what happens if your account, get, uh, your account gets lost? Or even worse, if you get banned for whatever reason? Because you, you have, in effect, now do not own what you have paid for. And I'm not familiar that there's a lot of court cases about this. It, it's not, at the moment, not a big problem, but certainly for future, 
But what annoys a lot of gamers is when a company makes changes to a game you supposedly own without permission, without asking you, and they alter what you have, and that can lead to a lot of problems. Yeah, that, that's definitely some murky area there. <laughs> it's a bit strange. You own it, but then it's like software, so it's like a live kind of a, this organic thing almost that can that can change. So then like, did you own the old version or do you own like this changing thing? That's a little bit weird, yeah. So you mentioned the indie, indie games made by these independent developers versus these AAA big studios. Like, are there any... I don't know, I'll take consistent maybe or big kind of changes between the games other than the, like, is it different genres, uh, types of games that tend to become more indie? Are they, are, do the indies live in a different place usually than the big AAA games or is there any difference there? Yeah, there's a, there's a good bit of difference, I would say. AAA studios tend to want games which make a lot of money. You know, the joke is they make all the money. So they would not be interested in genres that are not very easily profitable. Ubisoft is maybe the worst of this. And Ubisoft is a French studio where a lot of their, in the last three years, there's been complaints that their games are basically copy-paste with a different skin. So they're almost the same game or same general game that just has a different skin and, a skin and different name because they arrived at a formula that they liked and they can monetize very easily. It came in so bad, it became so bad that they canceled all of their games. I think was it for 2019 and 2020, and they wanted to go back and reinvent a lot of their games. That's how similar they were, and that's how they recognized the problem. A lot of studios prefer online games, they prefer multiplayer games, because as we talked in our previous podcast, you have one person bringing in their friends and their friends bringing in their friends, etc. So you get a big audience, you get continual, continual engagement. You can also, with online games like that, you can sell skins, you can have a lot of microtransactions, you can have competitions, you can have uh, seasons, which are also monetizable. And you can also do esports for a lot of them. And esports is seen almost as uh, a potential future for the gaming industry. And they almost see it as, let's say, the NFL. In retrospect, indie games tend to be smaller. They tend to be more concise. They tend to take more chances and be more focused on specific experiences. So, for example, my fiancé just finished a game or is finishing a game which you play as the fairer of the dead. So you ferry the dead across the river Styx. And it's a mixture between Western sort of a Greek mythology and a lot you can see the animation and a lot of the art is very eastern focused like it's almost like a, an anime you discover a number of spirits and then you grow your ship you make rooms for the spirits you make them happy until they're ready to pass on and you read their stories and interact with them and that's the game there is not a lot of room to monetize that game Because the spirits are the same and the situation is the same, uh, there is not a lot of replayability that you can have in that game for you to go and do it over. So a AAA studio would not be interested in that game. So would you say they're, I guess, uh, sort of interrupting you, but like, would you say they're more focused on, when you think of indie games, I guess at least when I think about indie movies, you know, they tend to be more focused on the art. They're definitely small budget and they're more risky things because, you know, they're trying to create a quality product but they don't. They might not have the biggest visual effects for all these things. But it's it's really so they bet on sort the the art of it or the original original content. Uh, would, yeah. you, would you say something similar to about these these indie games? Well, it's hard to say which is more. What is the art in gaming? Because for some people that would be the visuals. And if you're talking about visuals, obviously AAA studios with a huge tens of millions of dollars budget can have absolutely mind-boggling visuals. If you're talking about the story and the storytelling, AAA stories can be quite good as well. Some indie studios don't even have stories. Like they're more sandbox games. So I would say in that perspective, I wouldn't make a difference between AAA games and indie games. Like they can both have very artistic merits. I see. Yeah, the point about the graphics is interesting because 
you know, it's not like you have a movie without fancy effects. The whole thing is is virtual. The whole thing is a is an effect or it includes graphics. So it's almost like uh, <laughs> it's it's much more native, I guess, to to gaming to have to to have the visuals be a big part of it. Not necessarily. You can think about one of the most popular games nowadays is Minecraft. And it's past its popular, really the peak of its popularity, but it's still pretty popular and a lot of people play it. And Minecraft is a very boxy, very square game. To give you an example of, of two indie games that also have very pixelated graphics, one is called Stardew Valley and one is called Terraria. And Stardew Valley is one of those games that was written by one person. It's $15. It has, I think, several million downloads. It probably has over 10 million downloads. And it's just a farming sim. Yeah, there's quite a breadth of graphics in gaming. Yeah, Minecraft's definitely still ultra, ultra popular games. It's one of the top, top games in the world, for sure. So, so you mentioned briefly monetization strategies or just ways these games make money. Can you talk a little bit about a little bit more details of maybe what is the current trend in those? You know, what is actually happening? Like, are games moving in a certain direction that seems to be more successful? Like, what, what's the state of that? Yeah, there is, there is a ton of monetization. So just briefly to list the types of monetization strategies that are out there. Uh, the first and most obvious one is just you buy the game. And there's some studios, especially indie studios, leave it in that. So you buy, for example, Stardew Valley, you own Stardew Valley, and you even get the additional upgrades for free. Then there's games which have microtransactions, and microtransactions, as the name suggests, is you spend a small amount of money in the game. It's also called in-game purchases. And that can include skins for weapons, skins for clothes, other things like that. In The Sims, for example, that can include downloadable content or what's called a DLC. They can include different models, different, let's say if it's a building simulator or if it's The Sims, you can download uh, new models of furniture that you can then place in your house. A much more controversial uh, type of microtransaction is loot boxes, or as EA likes to put it, randomized uh, surprise mechanics. What it is, is you spend some money and you buy either a box or a packet or depending on the game, how they call it. And you don't know what's in there. There can be a number of things. There can be some very rare things and some very uh, common things. And it's most obviously common things. The reason that's, that is controversial is a lot of countries are now looking if that's a type of gambling. Because if you want some a specific item that you can get only through a, this timed event, that is only there for two weeks, and you can't really get these packets through gameplay, or it's very, very difficult, and you don't really know what you're getting. And the majority of things you're getting are probably going to be either doubles, repeats, or, or useless to you. Another type of monetization is season passes you have new seasons starting for for the game and that season is associated with some kind of content and some of this content is usually free and some of this content is usually paid the paid is typically new skins new things like that and a, a very good a lot of mobile games have that a lot of triple a games have that as well and in the mobile game i'm sure some people have seen it if you've played some things like gardenscape or housecapes usually in the top five or top 10 of, of mobile games or most profitable mobile games is you pay a small amount, let's say $5, and you, ha- you can progress along a, a season track. And as you progress, you unlock new rewards. And then you get, obviously, new in-game loot. And the last time of monetization that I sort of have here jot down is... Uh, the deluxe versions, so sometimes some games can have, you know, the base game, then you have deluxe versions, and then you have, you know, ultra deluxe or whatever it is. And each new version includes season passes, it could include downloadable content, and a lot of these things. Uh, it could include art books, uh, soundtrack, sometimes even physical goodies, like bags or hats or whatever. All right, so, so there's... Yeah, clearly, as you mentioned, a lot of these ways of making money through games. Um, so, but which ones would you say are 
the maze, the, the way people make game, uh, you know, games make money. Like what is the actual killer sort of a way to make money? Like what's the main, like if you think of, you know, how social media companies make money, it's really advertising, for example. Like there's other ways they make money, but advertising is sort of the slam dunk. Is there such clear sort of a top top strategy, monetization strategy for games that you would say? It kind of depends on the type of gaming and location. In the West, so US and Europe, you still have a lot of games which you, you just buy. And a lot of games have microtransactions. And I think loot boxes are, are one of the main ones that used to be the case. Now they're being phased out. If you look at a lot of the most uh, profitable games, for example, League of Legends, it has to do with skins. Just you buy a skin or you buy a character that you can play. So it has to do with some kind of a microtransaction. In the East, that is very different. In the East, actually, they, especially here, we are talking about China, they spend a lot more money. And, and for them, in the West, a lot of microtransactions would not fly, especially with what's called core gamers, which are people who game a lot uh, and, and usually are, are the most engaged audience in gaming. In the West, they would not tolerate a lot of microtransactions, especially if a lot of the game is behind a paywall. An example of this would be Star Wars Battlefront 2. It basically flopped as it came out because of their microtransactions and their monetization strategies. Whereas a lot of this would fly very well in the East. I've heard of people there spending over a million dollars on an account on a single game. We're talking about skins and, and passes and all that stuff. If we're talking about mobile gaming, in mobile gaming, the freemium kind of model is a lot more common where you download the game and play the game for free, but then you have your lives run out or your energy runs out and you need to pay for that. Or you need to pay for a season pass to get more goodies and things like that. That's an interesting aspect of games, right? Because like when you, when you buy a movie or a song or a book, like you don't generally have these extra transactions you can, you, you can pay. You can, you don't necessarily have a way, especially like, I mean, a million dollars sounds crazy, but like even like 20, you know, it's like uh, this add-on sort of uh, aspect of it. It's, it's very interesting and a fascinating way that they can, they can make money for better or worse, I guess. Do you know, do you know how the million dollars came out and where it, so the million dollars were a very, was a sort of a funny story where the guy who had the account, the account owner who had spent over a million dollars on it. He gave his friend access for a little bit. He loaned the account over and his friend sold it for a few hundred. And it got so bad that they, they went to court and the court said, no, you have to, they, the, the account has to be given back from the person who bought it. Because obviously, you know, it's a lot of money that, <laughs> very, that uh, the person Damn. spent on it. Wow, yeah, I mean, that's a... It's a kind of a dark side of games, isn't it? <laughs> like, are people making money actively buying and selling accounts and things like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, companies are trying to prevent it, but there's a lot of, a lot of problems with uh, buying and selling of accounts. Yeah. It really depends on the game. But if you have accounts which are worth hundreds of thousands, then, yeah, people are going to have incentive to steal them. Especially in games which are called MMORPG, so massive multiplayer online role-playing games. Uh, and they maybe are the most similar to this freemium mobile game type of model, where a lot of them are free and then you just pay for skins and pay for maybe downloadable content. Because they're continual services, you can probably spend thousands of dollars in them easy over a year or two. Right, so the game's kind of free or very cheap. That way they get a big exposure to people. Once they, once people start playing and exploring it or getting hooked up on it, then, then they can make the killing of these yeah. extra microtransactions or yeah. you know, purchases. Um, the most popular game that works off of that model in the West is uh, Guild Wars 2, which is an MMORPG. Now, a lot of play, people might say, well, what about World of Warcraft or, or Final Fantasy XV, which are another two MMORPGs? 
but they also make a lot of money from, you have to actually pay a monthly fee to play them. Whereas Guild Wars is free. You can download it right now and you can play the majority of the game for free. Or if you, you can unlock all of the game basically with just buying two DLCs that they have. And those are, I think, about $40 put together. So I mentioned also something that was interesting um, about the, the, the loot boxes, was it? Like where you have this gambling element uh, where you kind of like, uh, or I don't know, a randomness element. I guess you, you don't know what you're getting, you pay for it and you get like a box of things that are kind of unknown. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like, so surprise that? mechanics is what EA called them. And they called them that in a hearing of the UK parliament, which was about, is are those systems a form of gambling? The reason that a lot of the government, a lot of governments are now looking into that, and some governments have already said that they are for they are a type of gambling, which is, for example, Belgium has has implemented that. I think New Zealand may have as well. I'm not sure about New Zealand, uh, but the UK recently there was a report which came out. I think it was maybe in September or October of 2020, which said, yeah, they are a type of gambling. So this was. Um, the government, the UK government had initiated a study and that study came out and that's what it said. A lot of the backstory of this is that in 2018, 2019, you had a series of cases where somebody who was not necessarily in the position to make financial decisions, be it a child or somebody who is maybe uh, mentally handicapped, they spent hundreds or thousands of dollars uh, in just on a, on a single game, sometimes in a single day. And in one story, you had a fa- the father gave the child his phone to play on, and the phone was connected to his uh, card. So the child just kept on buying stuff without even realizing that they're buying. It took them two, three weeks to actually realize it. And initially, they didn't even want to refund them. Uh, and after the public outcry is when, when everything happened. This may vary by company, but oftentimes there's very little safeguards for people who may not be able to make such decisions. They basically rely on the psychology of uh, pressing a lever and seeing what comes out. And I think this is something you've talked about before, which is from a design perspective, this kind of uncertainty of outcome, which maybe you should talk about a little bit more here. Right. So, yeah, I think I, I mentioned a little bit when you're in an anticipation of a reward, you know, that, that's part of sort of these uh, behavioral psychology sort of methods of, of creating um, these habit-forming products. Part of that cycle, which I explained in the last podcast in, in, in more details, is receiving an award. You know, it's, it's part of what gets you keep coming back to something, could potentially addict you in something. There's research done on what is described as... Um, variable rewards which is kind of like you don't just get the same thing always that you expect you know maybe you pay for an ice cream you get the ice cream you maybe you pay for something you sometimes you get ice cream sometimes you get candy sometimes you get a potato and that variable reward that sort of uh, unknown thrill that potential for for big payout or or for nothing uh, tends to be very exciting for people tends to um, hook them up and, and produce large uh, amounts of dopamine and and so that, that tends to be like kind of like part of the way not just games but many many products do this how, how gambling works yeah when you actually when you were talking i kind of thought there are there is a lot of research on kids and on on animals like dogs monkeys etc which looks at how we bond to other people it looks at the psychology of sort of abuse in, a, in the same way so it looks at sometimes abusive, sometimes positive relationships between parent and child, for example. And it turns out that a lot of the cases, the child becomes very attached and very needy if you give it this kind of variable treatment. So if you treat a child badly, they kind of protect themselves. If you treat a child well, they're actually much more likely to go off and explore on their own and feel secure. But if you sometimes treat them badly and sometimes treat them well, they will always try and garner more of your attention, try and get on your good side. 
And it's the same actually with animals, that they do that a lot, that they almost try and buy your attention and buy your love. In a way, you can think of that as, as a form of engagement. It's definitely, there's something to this variance, there's something to this unpredictability, and it looks like games have figured out a way how to monetize that psychological element. So I also want to go back to something you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, which was around esports. Um, you mentioned something around the AAA titles kind of going for this as sort of the future of the gaming industry. Can you talk a little bit more into that? Like what is, what is esports and what's the current state of it? Well, esports is electronic sports. That's what it sounds. And it, it's a very controversial topic because obviously a lot of the people who are in the sports industry don't think it's a type of sports, which I suppose is, it is still very much discussed. There's people who call it mind sports. And esports is a summary of games which sort of have a sports type league. And they're typically AAA games, which are obviously have a large online component a lot of the time. These games are Counter-Strike, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Dota 2. There's a game called Smite, uh, Rocket League, Heroes of the Storm, Hearthstone, Super Smash Brothers, Counter-Strike, and Counter-Strike 2 and Overwatch. So those are typically the games that have uh, esports leagues and are considered to be esports. Can you talk more more about the details of this? So is there, I guess when I hear sports, I think of championships i think of tournaments i think of you know prizes okay talk about some of that how does that work yeah so a lot of these games for example league of legends which is one of the bigger esports out there and it's one of the bigger multiplayer games uh in general in the world and league of legends started in in the late 2000s and the first tournament i think was in 2011 and it only it had a pot of a hundred thousand dollars. So the pot is all the teams put money together, and then the winner gets the biggest share, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then it was watched by one and a half million people. So that was in 2011. League of Legends nowadays can fill entire stadiums with people, and there are several leagues in the world. There is the North American, there is the European, the Chinese, etc. And they have a world championship. That world championship is watched at at the peak. I think twenty nineteen, the twenty nineteen championship was watched by over a million people. So, see, so they're getting pretty serious there. Yeah, and they had a two million reward pot. So, would you say then the tendencies that that stuff is is growing quite a bit? It is growing. Yeah, if you watch videos on the industry. What you'd see is, um, especially in the late 2010s, you have they talk about uh, the emergence of the esports legend and the esports athlete, and those people are really good esports. People can make north of a million a year. They're really becoming celebrities in their own right, especially in some of the cases in the in the late. 2010s, they were talking about the salary of these uh, sports of these athletes was doubling and tripling every about six months. So there was a huge growth. I think nowadays it's going to going to start to stagnate because it was a lot of venture capital as well. They were expecting a huge audience, and, and in some cases, in some leagues, that has not materialized. Uh, I think Overwatch League Season 2 especially was very disappointing for people. Some other leagues like League of Legends, I think Call of Duty are doing relatively well. So it's really almost by a league-by-league basis you need to look at it. But yeah, there's a lot of money, which now that the industry is starting to mature, I think may stop and people may reevaluate what the return investment is on these leagues. I guess what that made me think about really is also this. I know a lot of people watch others play games in a platform like Twitch and yeah. I guess on YouTube. Um, do, do you know if that's happening with those, I don't know, athletes or those sort of celebrity 
tournament players? Like, do they have their own following in these these channels where people are actually oh. engaging with them more directly, watching them? I'm I'm sure they do. I'm actually not too knowledgeable on the athletes themselves. Um, I'm more follow the a little bit the business side of it. But yeah, I'm sure that they do. They are they are quite famous. They are celebrities themselves. Yeah, I'm sure they have. Yeah, because that's that's a pretty big, I guess, stream like, I guess, uh, monitor monetary sort of stream for for individuals. I guess right, like they play games. That's well, not something you you typically see for you know you're kind of seeing a little bit of social media now, but you don't really see it for other sports that much because well, it's kind of harder to. The skill set for you to be viable on youtube and on twitch is very different from the skill set for you to be a professional gamer because a lot of the time for you to be on youtube and twitch you have to be entertaining so people like you have huge actually i think some of the bigger stars on these platforms are basically play games like asma gold is huge on twitch dr disrespect was huge on twitch ninja at some point he was the biggest streamer on Twitch, streamer in the world, really. Uh, on YouTube, you go, and Dr. Disrespect was on, uh, is not on Twitch anymore. He's on YouTube, and I think he's moving to Facebook gaming. PewDiePie, you obviously have that Markiplier, Jacksepticeye, huge people with... PewDiePie alone has over 100 million subscribers. Markiplier has, what, 25 million? Jacksepticeye has 18 million, so huge, huge followings. These are some of the most famous people in the world. I think just the skill set is so different for you to but be competitive. They're not, so these people are not, to be clear, these people are not athletes? No, they're just no, like they're, they're just streamers, yeah. Because I think for streaming, you have to A, be more entertaining rather than just pl- be good at the game. You have to comment, you have to... Uh, a lot of people have made... There is a channel out there called Grey Steel Plays, and he basically makes... A, uh, he purposefully plays the game in an absurd or bad way because it's more entertaining. And he's also relatively big. I think he has about 3 million subscribers. Whereas if you're a professional, you have to play the game really well at a really high level for probably 10 to 12 hours a day, every day. So you don't really have the time to go out there and engage with the audience and edit videos and you know be entertaining and just play the game. And then there another big thing is that gaming uh, media like that kind of the commenting industry, the the game let's play industry is uh, very transient. So today Minecraft is popular, but tomorrow it's Fortnite. But the day after that, it's Subnautica or whatever other game comes out. To give an example, in the mid-2020, the Fall Guys was a huge game. Like everybody played it. Two months later, it's Among Us. Among Us and everybody was playing Among Us. And now Among Us is largely gone. So they're almost like two, three month trends until people kind of get bored of it. And you can't do that if you're a professional athlete. Right. Everything's just at such a fast pace in that world, it seems. Well, in in sports worlds, I mean, we don't, you know, in physical sports worlds, we don't have new sports getting invented every day, right? We have the same sports. Actually, we have the same sports we've had for, in some cases, hundreds of years, thousands of years. In other cases, more recent, but generally speaking, we kind of watch the same things. It's just we have different seasons and different things. But uh, the game's the same. Athletes change, the players change, but uh, the game's still the same. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you if there is a parallel with esports and physical sports when it comes to these, I would say, in-person arenas. I mean, naturally, esports are sort of born to be digital you can watch from everywhere. They make a lot of sense when you watch from everywhere. But is there, you know, just like with other sports, you know, I, I love watching, you know, basketball on TV, but I also love being in the arena and I think it's better. So that's why everyone's now like to really be there. Is there such thing for esports if you're familiar with, like where people oh. actually gather and in-person watch it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. First, I, I'll address a little bit your parallel between sports and esports. Uh, because of the Overwatch League. And the Overwatch League is of interest because Overwatch is a game by Activision Blizzard. And Activision Blizzard is trying to push Overwatch League to be more akin to uh, standard sports than typical esports because the formats can actually be quite different. 
So in typical esports, you have one team can have many different nationalities in it. You can have an American, a German, a French, whatever. Whereas in in the Overwatch League and in in more traditional sports, you're typically more region locked, and you have uh, teams which represent a certain city or state or county or whatever. And it's the same that they're trying. Blizzard is trying to do the same for the Overwatch League, when they're to the point where they're hiring people from the NFL to try a little bit more that way. And they're they're not having an awful lot of success with that, to be honest. But they're definitely trying to bring the esports more in the mainstream and make them a little bit more like normal sports. And ESPN, for example, I think now has some of the rights to stream these competitions. So do they have like, I guess if I understand correctly, do they have some professional, I guess, yeah, football or other sports athletes. And I guess that also makes me think about celebrities. You know, when I think of, let's say, one place that I've seen this is poker, right? Where in poker, to attract people to these tournaments, they have all kinds of celebrities that have nothing to do with poker, but they might be like an athlete or just like an actor or something like that. Is that happening with esports too? Is that what you're trying to describe kind of? Well, no, what I meant more is they're getting a lot of the management people. Now, there is what's called the Games Awards and other games-based initiatives that do, in their ceremonies, they're trying to make them more Oscar-like and they have loads of Hollywood celebrities. But no, e-games, I, to my knowledge, they, a lot of them have their own celebrities, like Housecrown. And it's, it's a lot of management that they're trying to bring in. Right, right. And yeah, so to answer your question now for uh, the question you asked, are there a lot of arenas? Yes, there. if you Google uh, League of Legends World Championship, you're going to find a lot of pictures of huge arenas, like jam-packed with people with giant screens in there. Yeah, there's a lot of events. If you just got presented with, uh, with a picture, from it, you didn't know where it was from, you would think it's either a concert or it's some WWE, something like that. You wouldn't think it's esports. Right, huge, huge crowds. Yeah, absolutely. Especially League of Legends. They, they are famous for a, lot of, for a lot of their promotion where they even hire uh, bands to make custom videos and songs for their championships. Right, makes sense. As things mature, as they get bigger and flashier, I guess, yeah. they, they always tend to get that extra touch marketing. For example, actually, League of Legends is also interesting on another aspect. So it's a huge game. The game makes about a billion dollars a year. And it's made about $10 billion since it started, 2009. It's free to play, and they make their money off of selling characters, skins, things like that. And sometimes they would have a themed set of skins, for example, based off of Sailor Moon, like the Star Scouts, whatever they were called, or Beach Party, whatever. Sometimes they would commission a song from a very popular K-pop band, for example, for a specific set of skins only as a promotion for those skins. Yeah, the, the promo the promo game always always goes up when there's when there's appetite for the product. I guess that's just capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Doing what it's doing. But they definitely have a huge marketing thing. They even have like custom videos and songs, and they're very good songs and very good videos for a lot of their characters as well. Yeah, it definitely feels like one of those industries that are like super underestimated, just because. I don't know. It, it's been like we talked touched on it in the last podcast. It's it, it was traditionally considered something that kids did, and so and I think WWE to be to be fair also got a lot of that. Where oh, this is not serious stuff. They can't possibly be filling up the arenas and making a lot of money. But actually, there's uh, <laughs> when there's demand, there's there's someone that's going to make money out of it. Yeah, the industry will grow and all that. So if somebody is interested in just having a look at uh, a video as an example of what I was talking about, I would recommend KDA, which is a uh, Korean band, a Korean pop group. It's called Pop Stars is the song based on skins that they are selling. 
I I'm curious to hear how you feel about esports. Like, what is your impression? Well, it seems to be you know real. It seems to be there. It, it kind of makes sense as a as sort of a natural progression. I guess I think of it a little bit as as a, as a parallel to maybe uh, maybe skateboarding or or snowboarding, where things start kind of like with people messing around, uh, sort of underground growth. And then, then they become this this huge thing, and potentially even you know Olympic sports, uh, as is the case. Uh, I guess snowboarding is already an Olympic sport. I think skateboarding is going to be for the first time an Olympic sport in in, Tok- in Tokyo, I believe, uh, if I'm not uh, wrong. But I have definitely heard something about it becoming an Olympic sport, and so I I can definitely see this as a uh, one day may maybe even being that. I can even see the Olympics one day because if, if society is shifting towards more and more digital things, then it makes sense that sports follow as well. That's a very interesting thing that you just said that because there's deep talks. If you, there's a BBC article out, it came out on April, 2018 in April, 2018, which Paris Olympics in deep talks with esports to be included as a demonstration sport. That's for Paris 20, the Olympic Games in Paris in 2024. Right. No, it may make sense to me. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, if it, it is, clear, so it's clearly a sport, right? It's, it's pretty fierce competition. I mean, I've, I've played video games, you know, like I said, I played even today sometimes, but in high school I played pretty intensely, like uh, not, not, nothing like super serious, like <laughs> athletics, but, you know, I've played for many, many hours. And, like I've seen how there's, you know, an incredible difference between top players and sort of mediocre players. And so anytime you have this fierce competition and ways for people to really progress and get better at something, you, you can you can see it growing as some more serious competition. And if there's eyeballs on it, then, then why not? Like, I, I think one day they'll potentially be an Olympic sport. I kind of disagree with that because I don't really see them as sports because sports for me have a physical aspect to them. It, there, there are competitions. There are definitely a lot of what you said I, I agree with. It's just I wouldn't classify them as sports because they don't have a physical aspect to them. So I think esports is actually an inept title for them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the yeah, I, I so I disagree with that for sure. I think I I consider chess a sport as well. I know some people don't. Uh, I consider poker a sport. Uh, I definitely think of it as, and that's just my sort of definition for it. I think of it as a a ruled environment that wouldn't naturally occur. Uh, it's it's a game with rules that really has opponents face each other competing directly, whether it's a teams or, or individuals. But I guess that's kind of my definition of a, of a sport. Mm. Sort of more of an organized competition. Right. Yeah. yeah, where there's clear winners and clear losers. And so to me, games are, and I mean, I like the esports piece of it because it kind of tells you what it is. That's, you know, electronic or yeah. you know, through the internet or something. So I do like that piece. But it's, uh, yeah. I'd honestly prefer, I think, to have esports in their own Olympics rather than them joining the actual Olympics. So that's interesting for too, you know, it's the Olympics certainly mean different things to different people. And I, I guess I don't mean to kind of lightly sort of brush off and say, oh yeah, we should, we should change that. We should keep adding things. But uh, it is an interesting thing of what do, what would the Olympics mean for us as the world is becoming progressively more, more digital and how would they evolve? I guess lately what we've seen from the Olympics is they're bringing a lot more of these I guess sports that are more attractive to watch, uh, which has been a little controversial, kind of like giving baseball a goal, like with skateboarding is kind of a similar thing. Like mm. bringing in these sports that are not necessarily traditional Olympic sports that you can imagine, like the Greek games or, you know, wrestling of the past. Like they talked about dropping wrestling. That was a big deal. I think they temporarily dropped it or something or it was on the ballot and there was like big protests about that from, from those federations of wrestling because, you know, wrestling has been the oldest sport, even though it might not be the most attractive to watch to some people, um, which I I disagree, but to some people it's not. 
you know, like where do we draw the line of like what's an Olympic sport and what's not? It's certainly a controversial topic. Would you watch esports in the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think so. If I was, you know, if I was really hooked up on a game, I certainly, you know, I'm a Formula One fan and I did not think that I would watch sort of a video game. During COVID, I think that there was a period where Formula One was off. So they didn't do the actual races, car races uh, on track. Well, they just kind of did this, not as a replacement of the sport, but they just for fun, I guess they had these leagues that they organized. And some of the actual drivers and stars were kind of part of those leagues. And I actually did watch some of that and it was quite fun. You could see the drivers. And when I have created certain, I guess, fanhood or, you know, I'm sort of a fan of someone or I'm kind of have this connection with them. Um, I feel like I can, I can enjoy watching them compete, uh, you know, using a simulator or their computer or something like that or a console. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually have to be me watching them drive a physical thing. I'm not saying it's, it's sort of the same or we're there 100%, but I can see myself doing that in the future for sure. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched an eSport game or, or even just sort of one of the games that we talked about? I don't think I've watched like an, I guess I wouldn't even know what's considered like an eSport game, but I don't, I've definitely not watched one of those championships. Uh, I have watched people play those quite competitively in, in just like some YouTube, random YouTube videos, uh, but that's about it. The games which we talk about, the Counter-Strike, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Dota 2. I suppose we've played StarCraft. We've played StarCraft. I mean, so so StarCraft I've seen people play those games for sure. I mean, I've, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen all of these games pretty much. Yeah. And we, we've organized to play League of Legends soon as well. I've even downloaded it now. Sure thing, yeah. Definitely got to give it a try after... After uh, learning how big it is, after doing research for this podcast, uh, for sure, it's an interesting thing to try. I would sort of like to discuss two of the companies that are the big players in this field, uh, just because they're a little bit more interesting. And one of them is Activision Blizzard, which own a lot of the games which are on the list are in some way linked to Activision Blizzard. And Hearts of Hearthstone, uh, Heroes of the Storm, and Heroes of the Storm is a little bit of a dead esport, but I've included it, StarCraft 2 and Overwatch are all uh, Activision Blizzard games. So they're really, that company's really pushing for the whole esport genre. And their most successful thing is Overwatch. And actually, sorry, no, they also have Call of Duty and their most successful is Call of Duty and then the second one is Overwatch. And the reason I'm getting confused is the four I just mentioned are Blizzard and Call of Duty's Activision. The other one is Riot Games, which owns League of Legends. And Riot Games is now creating a whole lot of other games as well. They just have so much money that they can do whatever they want. So they're another company to really kind of keep an eye on. Probably one of the biggest companies that people may not know about is called Tencent. Tencent is a Chinese company which owns a lot of... Uh, either partially or completely a lot of other companies. And they're involved in pretty much all of the big studios or a lot. So I guess in, in that line, like what's the, do you know what's the, what are the biggest markets for games? I mean, is it United States? Is it China? Like where United are games States most popular? United States and China. In? Yeah. United States, China and Europe are the biggest markets for sure. Uh, North America, China and, and, and Europe in general. Yeah. I think it really depends on the type of game. If, like if it's a mobile game, I think China is the biggest market. Mobile games are not as popular in the West. If it's kind of a JRPG or KRPG, so Japanese or Korean style, there's different styles of, of role-playing games. They're also more popular in the East, obviously. Whereas a lot of the AAA games such as uh, Grand Theft Auto, Auto or things like that, they would be more West-focused. Quite a bit of different names and very, very interesting things that are happening in the space uh, from what, you know, I'm gathering from what you're saying. I guess as a, as a final question, I want to ask you, like, where do you, as someone that, you know, follows games pretty, pretty closely, uh, obviously you don't, you don't work in that industry, but you follow the games pretty closely. And um, as I gather from our conversation, like, where do you think games are going next? Like, what do you think is the future of gaming? And you can take this question 
any way you want to interpret it. But like, if you if you maybe want to speculate of what's what's in it for them. Well, there's a lot of answers to that question because there's a lot of different directions that the gaming industry is going. Personally, I'm most excited about the future of the indie industry because I mostly play indie games. I, I rarely go for the big AAAs. And that is more because now technology and computing power is a lot cheaper. Indie games can be wider and wider in scope with while maintaining pretty low uh, you know, expenses. So, and they can be very interesting and there's a lot of very good writing going on as well. Um, so you can see a lot of indie gaming with better and better quality. In terms of the AAA games, I think one of the things that will have a big impact on them is the whole gambling debate and, uh, and how that pans out. And at the moment, it looks like uh, surprise mechanics is going to be considered a type of gambling. So they're going to have that door shut and that would shut down some entire games. There is, um, or, or nearly shut them down. For example, there's some versions of FIFA that are heavily reliant on that. So AAA games, I imagine, will continue on with microtransactions, season passes, and a lot of that. They, some recent successes actually may change the industry a little bit as well. For example, uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is an EA game, which made a lot, it's a single player game, which EA are famous for in the mid 2010s. They were going around saying, no, no, players don't want single player games. They just want large multiplayer games. They don't want story driven games. They want, you know, battle royales and things like that. Because of the success of that game, I think a lot, there is going to be a little bit of a return to single player uh, narrative driven gaming in in the AAA industry. But I don't think that that type of game really would become the mainstay there because monetization is not that easy and getting your audience and keeping your audience is not that easy. It's much easier with a MMORPG. Um, a big thing to think about in the future as well is the is Riot Games, which I mentioned, and they will probably start revolutionizing the industry or at least have a big impact on the industry. They were a studio which basically had only one game, which was League of Legends, and in the last year, they've announced five or six other games in various genres. So they're going to become major competition to everyone in, a, in pretty much all of the AAA favorite genres. So they are another big wild card because some of the games, Valorant is one which went out and it's sort of a competition to CSGO and to Call of Duty. It's that kind of game, which is a first person shooter with some more flavorful, colorful elements that could disrupt the industry, at least to some degree. Uh, And maybe the most interesting for you would be nowadays there is a... VR games are starting to be a big branch. Now I'm not, I haven't talked about and I haven't mentioned them before because VR is really, there's only a few titles that are very popular. But this year, or was it last year, Valve released Half-Life Alex, And Half-Life Alex is a VR only game. Yeah, it was a big success. It was a big success. It, it I think quadrupled or quintupled the amount of VR sets sold for that game alone. And because of Half-Life Alex, VR is considered more and more a viable field for narrative games and for AAA. So that would be a big field. That, I would say that would be the newest thing in the future. Yeah, definitely interesting stuff coming from VR there. Sounds yeah. like a good topic we can, we can, we can talk about next, in the next episode of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, VR, AR. AR actually is another big one with Pokemon Go. Right. Yeah. And Pokemon Go is this, I don't know, is this still big? Oh, yeah. It's this phenomenon where people used the augmented reality game where they, they were just, I guess they were just collecting Pokemons. I haven't really played it. You just yeah. find Pokemons in the physical world and then you get you capture them. with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Pokemon Go is, I think, one of the biggest mobile games at the moment. Like it's, it's in the top 10, I believe. So what, what stood out to you the most in terms of the gaming industry? What, what excites you the most of the things we talked about? 
Well, I guess it's uh, the most interesting thing was that you know there's such variety in, in ways they they have these revenue streams and in the way they they touch people, they connect with people. You know, just it's a different beast, I guess. So it's kind of exciting for me to think of this medium as is becoming more and more mainstream and to to see just variety of ways entertainment is evolving you know each sort of era had their entertainment and their their different ways that the people kind of relaxed or had competitions and you know just in general like we, we have a lot of this it seems like this is sort of the thing that our generation maybe is gonna have is is the thing that uh, didn't really exist before we were born and kind of became kind of big as we as we lived so i'm excited to see where it goes I think one thing that it really made me think about is, um, as I'm thinking about monetization and sort of business of it, you know, these games have a ton of data. And as the world becomes more and more data-driven, I feel like it, to some extent they have an edge over sports uh, because they see how you're not just a spectator, uh, you know, uh, like when I, I watch basketball, right? And so I am just a spectator. They don't really have much data about me other than which teams I watch, what time I watch, you know, maybe how often I watch. But when I'm actually engaging with the content, in a sense, I'm playing the game, I feel like there's so much more data about me. So that, for better or worse, that's going to probably have a huge impact the the more we advance that technology on how they build those things, how games become more adaptable to people, customizable to people. And so I'm kind of excited about it. I'm also terrified about it a little bit, but... Overall, I would say that's something I'm, I'm very interested to see where that's going to go. Yeah, you actually sort of touched on a topic which is a bit hot now, which is um, companies following live chat and voice chat in terms of, they say to limit harassment and, and provide better services. But basically, f- there is aspects about data collection and big data, which are also being discussed at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and one of the ideas that is actually more exciting in terms of what you talked about as well, because of video games and because of a lot of these streaming services now exist, uh, game streaming, I mean, a lot of the idea behind it is, let's say that you go to YouTube and you're watching a video about Call of Duty, for example, and there'll be a little bottom at the bottom of, of that. And uh, you can press the button and you can just stream Call of Duty and play it right away. So there is this integration between more classical entertainment, which is, you know, videos, et cetera, and more uh, new age entertainment. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it uh, it develops. Yeah. And uh, with that, I think think we should end it there. Yeah. All right. Have a nice day. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate us, like, and share. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Pine Talks. From the whole Pine Talks team, we hope you have an awesome day.